You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. My Father, how can we thank you enough for your word which you have given to us in our own language and a copy for each of us. We thank you for the abundance of it. It is before us with such clarity that um, demands a response and demands obedience. We thank you that you have revealed, stooped to reveal yourself to us in written form, that we might know you and that we might know the true God and have eternal life. We pray now that as we look at your word that you would speak to us through this book. Make the book come alive to us. May your word be alive to us that we might respond as you would have us to respond and appropriately with faith, believing in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this gospel, the gospel of John, was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's John's own description of why he wrote the gospel. You have to get all the way to the end of the gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, before John, John finally tells us, this is why I wrote. He wrote so that we might believe. And all the way through his gospel, he emphasizes the word believe. Believing, believed, believes. He's speaking about belief. And everything he's writing is to move us toward believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by that belief we might have life in his name. So it's not surprising that as we're going through the gospel of John that we would stumble again across this whole concept of believing, which is the right response to everything he has told us in chapter 5. He writes so that we might believe, and you can see John's emphasis as you look through his gospel. You can see him mention believing and believes and believe so many times, especially in contrast with the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John uses prolifically in his gospel the verb form of, uh, pastuo is the verb, and it's the verb for believing, believes or believed, and it's translated that way all the way through the gospel. John, interestingly, and this is only going to be curious to those of you who like the deep, deep things, John never in his gospel uses the noun for belief, pistis. Always uses the verb, believing, believes, or believed, but never the noun form. And some people have kind of, it's curious why John would do that. He wants to emphasize believing, but he seems to not mention belief. Why not the noun and why only the verb? Some people think, and I'm tempted to agree with this, that John is trying to emphasize the active nature of believing. He doesn't want us to just simply say, all right, sure, I believe that. What John wants instead is for us to cast our entire being upon 
this one named Jesus and to entrust our destiny and our eternity and ourselves and our soul and all that we have to him. So belief for John is not simply a mental acquiescence to certain facts about Jesus or about the gospel. Belief for John is throwing yourself onto this one that he is presenting to us and entrusting everything to him. So it's a very active belief. That same word, pastuo in the Greek, Matthew uses it 11 times in his gospel. 11 times. Mark uses it 10 times. 14 if you count the long ending of Mark, the the last half of chapter 16, which I'm not inclined to believe that that's the full ending of Mark, but let's say 14 for the sake of argument. Matthew 11, Mark 14, Luke only 9 times in his gospel does he use the word believing or believes or believed. John uses the word 89 times. 89 times. That means if you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, add them together, multiply by three, that's how many times John uses the word believing. Do you think that John is trying to emphasize something? He wants us to believe. He wants us to be believing. He wants us to entrust ourselves entirely to Christ. So everything he writes, every discourse, every sign, every miracle, every word he records from Jesus, every event of John or Jesus traveling through the countryside in his preaching, everything is intended to move us toward believing that we might entrust ourselves to Christ. So we get now to the end of John chapter 5, and John has laid out for us the claims of Christ, that he is the eternal one, he is equal with the Father. Then Jesus called his four witnesses to the stand, as it were, the works that the Father gave him to do, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the Father, and the testimony of the Scriptures. All of these bear witness. Now we come to the end of John chapter 5, and there is one word left ringing in our ears when we get to the end. And what is that word? Believe. And that's how John ends the chapter. That's how John ends the discourse. The last words recorded are about believing. And so when we get to the end of John 5, the last thing ringing in our ears, the last thing we are stuck with is believe. You see it emphasized. Look at verse 38. You see Jesus emphasizing this concept of believing. You do not believe him whom he sent. And then as he draws all of this discourse to a close, Jesus is pushing them to believe. He is laying before them the consequences of their unbelief and the privileges of the man who does believe and trusts in him. And then he ends all of this in verse 34. Or verse 44. How can you believe when you seek glory from one another? And then four times in the last two verses. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he who... For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so we're we're left with what? Believe. That's what John wants us to end chapter 5 with. Believe. And so these verses, verse 45 through 47, are an apt conclusion to everything we've read in chapter 5. And you'll see that as we jump into it. So let's take a look at it. We're beginning in verse 45. Remember, John is moving us toward the response of belief. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in him you, whom you have put your trust. That, I think, is an interest, interesting statement, particularly here at the end. Do not think that I accuse you before the Father. Do you think, as we've gone through John chapter 5, that listening to Jesus that day, that some of those Pharisees, those self-righteous Jews, might have got the impression that Jesus was accusing them? Do you sense that maybe that's how they would have taken some of the things that he said? He has told them that they are under judgment. He has told them that they are dead in their sins. He has told them that they are cut off from the life of God. He has told them that if they will not embrace Him, they will suffer the resurrection to eternal torment, to eternal lasting judgment. He has told them, you have not seen God's form at any time. You have not heard God's word at any time. You do not have the word of God abiding in you. And you do not receive the one whom God has sent. He has told them that they do not have the love of God in them. 
that they do not receive the messengers that God has sent them, and they do not entrust themselves to the one whom God has given to them. He has told them that they do not seek the glory of God, but are only interested in their own shallow, earthly, vain, self-righteous, self-seeking glory. Now, do you think that by the time you get to verse 45, that they might have got the impression that Jesus was accusing them? You would, wouldn't you? If you were sitting there and you had heard somebody lay all of that out about you, you would say, wow, it's quite an indictment. But it's not going to be Jesus who accuses them on Judgment Day before the Father. Why is it not going to be Jesus who accuses them on Judgment Day before the Father? Verse 22, you remember it? The Father's not going to judge anybody. All the judgment has been given to the Son. Jesus has already established that. I'm not going to be your accuser. He's saying, I'm going to be your judge. There is one who is going to accuse you. And this one who is going to accuse you is the last person on earth they would have ever expected would be their accuser on Judgment Day. Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. Moses. Now, they loved Moses, the Pharisees. They loved Moses. Everything was about Moses. They considered themselves faithful, dependable, reliable, consistent, persistent disciples of Moses. It was Moses, Moses, Moses for them. They loved the law. They loved the law. They rejoiced in the law. They rejoiced in all of the Mosaic law. And they considered themselves as faithful followers of Moses. If you had asked them, whom do you follow? In whom do you set your hope? In whom do you trust? They would have said Moses. We're descendants of Moses. We are disciples of Moses. We love Moses. We have set our hope for eternal life on Moses. And here Jesus says, the one who is going to accuse you on judgment day is Moses. Now to understand how this would sound to a Jew, let me give you an analogy or an illustration. This would be like saying to a staunch Roman Catholic, when you stand before God on judgment day, the one who is going to accuse you of idolatry is Mary and the saints in whom you have placed your hope for deliverance. you imagine that? That is exactly what it would sound like to a Jew. The one who is going to stand as your accuser is Moses. Now, Jesus does not mean that literally, physically, Moses was going to take the stand and bring accusation against them on Judgment Day. That's not the sense of it. What Jesus is saying is that the writings in, whom, in which they had placed their faith, the Old Testament writings of Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books, those writings and everything that Moses revealed in those writings, that light of revelation would be the very thing that condemned them on Judgment Day. And that was the very thing in which they were placing all of their hope. Should they have ever placed any hope in the Mosaic Law? Should they have? Should they have looked to the law and said, this is the source of my righteousness? This is the source of my hope. This is what is going to give me life. And yet we saw this a couple of weeks ago. They looked to the law and the reading of Scripture and thought to themselves that in the reading of the Mosaic Law, in the loving of the Mosaic Law, in obedience to the Mosaic Law, they were receiving life. And that the more one studied the law of Moses, and the more one embraced the law of Moses, the more life he received. And the more you memorized of Moses' writings, and the more you followed Moses' writings, the more they would grant you eternal life. Was that the purpose of the law? Could you ever be justified by the works of the law? Is it possible for any man, woman, or child to faithfully and fully keep the full law of God from the moment they are born until the moment that they die? That's impossible. Is it possible for us to keep even one of the Ten Commandments perfectly through our entire life, without fault, in the spirit in which the commandment is given? Is that possible? It is not possible. Every person in this building has violated all 
ten of the Ten Commandments, unless you are an infant and you're sitting in your mother's arm. All the rest of us, if you're not an infant, if you're able to speak, if you're able to think, if you're able to ration and reason and walk here on your own, you have violated the Ten Commandments because we're born in sin. The very thing in which they had placed their hope was the thing that was going to judge them on the Day of Judgment. Paul says in Galatians that no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. Galatians 3.10, as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's the purpose of the law. It's to shut up the self-righteous person. To shut the mouth in the presence of God. So that we cannot justify ourselves anymore. And we stand condemned and guilty with a mouth stopped in the presence of judgment to say, I'm guilty. I can't justify myself. I can't excuse my sin. I violated all of those laws. I stand guilty before a holy God. That's the purpose of the law. They thought the law was going to give them life. And see, they missed entirely the whole purpose of the law. John Stott says, We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Christ. Now, if they had believed Moses, if they were true disciples of Moses, whom would they have believed in? They would have believed in Jesus. They would have seen him and they would have said, like Philip, this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Philip got it back in chapter 1, verse 45. The Pharisees didn't get it. Here were the men who fastidiously studied every jot, every tittle, every letter of the law down to its smallest minutia and thought that in them they had eternal life and they could memorize and had memorized vast sections of the Torah thinking that in them was the way to eternal life. And they didn't get it. They didn't really believe in Jesus. They didn't really believe what Moses wrote. For if they had believed what Moses wrote, they would have believed Jesus when he showed up. And then back in chapter 1, you remember when Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus? And Philip said to Nathaniel, Come, see the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Philip got it. Philip was a fisherman. These men were students of the law. Philip was a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. John was a fisherman. These simpletons got it. I think to fulfill what was written in Scripture, that to the wise these things were hidden, but to the simple these things were revealed. Philip truly did believe what Moses wrote. And so when the one about whom Moses wrote showed up on the scene, Philip recognized him instantly. This is the one about whom Moses wrote. Verse 45, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. In what way did Moses write about Jesus? Well, if you read through the first five books of the law, or the first five books of the Old Testament, and you know it's a lot of stuff about the Levitical priests and the feasts and the festivals and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the offerings, and all of that populates a lot of it. There's also the Ten Commandments in there. There are prophetic statements like Moses in Deuteronomy, I think it's verse uh, chapter 18, where he speaks of God raising up a prophet like himself eventually, and to this one you will heed. The fulfillment of that was Jesus. So there are direct statements written by Moses. Genesis 3.15, the woman will give birth, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Those are direct prophecies of Christ. So in that way, Moses wrote about Jesus. But does Jesus mean here just that just the passages in which Moses specifically predicted the coming of the Messiah? Or does Jesus here mean something more general, and at the same time more specific. I think it is something more general. It's not just the specific passages that speak of the coming of the Messiah. Who was it that showed up to Moses in the burning bush? 
God was. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen the undiminished glory of the Father. But who is it that has revealed the triune God to us? The Son has. Who was it that showed up and spoke to Moses in the burning bush? The Son. I believe that every appearance of God in the Old Testament to His people was an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. It is the Son who has revealed the Father and the glory of God to us. All of it is the Son. So who spoke to Moses in the burning bush? It was the Son. Who was it that spoke to Moses face to face? It was the Son. Who was it that spoke to Moses on the mountain and gave mountain the, uh, Moses the law? It was the Son. Every communication that God gave through Moses about Himself was the Son revealing the nature of the triune God to men. The nature of the Father, the nature of the Son, and the nature of the Holy Spirit, whom we have seen, is all one substance and one essence. It's one nature, not three different natures. One nature. All of that revealed through the Son to Moses. So everything Moses wrote about God, he was writing about the Son. Moses wrote about Jesus. That is a a massive statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. Imagine that somebody showed up and said to you, everything Moses wrote, he wrote about me. See, it sounds ludicrous when somebody when somebody else says it, doesn't it? But when Jesus says it, suddenly you realize these are statements of his claims to deity. He is saying that everything Moses wrote was about him, and that's true. We'll see in John chapter 6 that the man which came down of heaven was a symbol and a picture and a type and a foreshadowing of the bread of life which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world through the sacrifice of himself. That's John 6. That's Jesus. Jesus was pictured in the serpent that was put up on the pole in the wilderness, John chapter 3. Jesus himself is the rock that gave water to the Israelites, who himself is the source of living water for all who thirst and can come to him. He's in all of those pictures in the Old Testament. And he's in all the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals. And everything that was offered in the Old Testament by way of an animal sacrifice or a grain offering was intended in some way to picture or to portray or to prepare us to understand the ministry and the person of this divine son. Everything. So all of it, everything, Genesis to Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, to Deuteronomy, all of it, the first five books, given for the purpose of preparing us for the Son. So that when the Son would come into the world, those who truly believed and listened to what Moses wrote would say what? This is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Philip recognized him instantly. The Pharisees missed it, but Philip recognized him instantly because Philip believed Moses. And if you believe Moses, you will believe Jesus. Leon Morris in his commentary says, Every faithful disciple of Moses is on the road to becoming a Christian. And every bad Jew is on the road to rejecting the gospel. That's a profound statement. Every faithful follower of Moses is on the road to becoming a Christian. Because if you listen to what Moses wrote, you will come to this conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that He came into the world to save sinners. That's the message of Moses. So if you believe Moses, you will believe Jesus. Now just on an aside before we get to the very last verse of our passage, verse 47. I shouldn't even have to say this, and I really don't have to say it to a crowd like this. But I just want you to be aware, there is a whole segment of Christianity, higher critical Christianity. By higher critic, we mean people who place themselves above Scripture to criticize Scripture, who reject the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. They reject that. In fact, they say you know, the Pentateuch, the first five books, were written by four different authors. They go by the, by the initials J-E-D-P. So sometimes it's called the uh, J-E-D-P theory. Sometimes it's called the documentary hypothesis. Sometimes it's called the Wellhausen hypothesis. 
I call it wrong. There's nothing like a clear statement like this that should eliminate all that type of willful stupidity. Yet some people can maintain willful stupidity even in the presence of clear statements like this. Look, either Jesus wrote the first, or sorry, either Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament or he didn't. If he didn't, then Jesus is either wrong or being intentionally deceptive. Either Jesus knew Moses didn't write him, and he intentionally said that he did, knowing that he was communicating a falsehood, which that in itself is a blasphemous idea, or Jesus was mistaken, too stupid, too ignorant, and too limited in his knowledge to know who truly wrote the Pentateuch. So if I have to choose between 18th century liberal German theologians or Jesus, I think the choice is clear, right? We go with Jesus. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying. Moses wrote them. Look at verse 47. Jesus brings it all to a conclusion. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you don't believe me, Moses, you're not going to believe me. Why is that? Well, if they reject the John the Baptist's testimony and they reject the testimony of his works and they reject the testimony of the Father and they reject the testimony of the Scripture, when it comes to Moses and listening to what Moses wrote about Jesus, which is the testimony of Scripture, they're going to reject that. And listen, if they honestly, though they say they believe Moses, if they reject the teachings of Moses, whom they revere and love and follow and read, what are they going to do with the spoken word of Jesus whom they hated? They're going to reject him too. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if one were to rise from the dead and present the gospel to them. And if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, then they certainly will not believe the incarnate Son of God standing in their presence testifying about it. If they believed Moses, they would believe Jesus. And what is the proof that they rejected Moses' writings? The fact that they rejected Jesus. If they had believed Moses' writings, they would have believed Jesus but because they would not really believe Moses as much as they said they did, they rejected the Son of God. Now here's the application for you and I, and it's just really one basic, simple point. You and I should notice the close connection that is that exists in the passage between the words of Moses and the words of Jesus. And rejecting God's revelation in one small part will inevitably lead to rejecting God's revelation on the whole. When you as a Christian say, well... I'm going to believe this, but I'm not going to believe this. I'll believe this part, but not this part. I'm willing to accept the Jesus thing, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, eternal life through Him, Him coming into the world, all of that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. But the creation, seven 24-hour days, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the parting of the Red Sea, making an axe head float, man in the wilderness, those things, not so much. I will take the Jesus part, but I will reject that part. What you do, or when you say, for instance, I will take the doctrinal statements, but I'm just not so sure about the miracles. I don't think that the miracles were really miraculous. The miracles really didn't happen, but I like the doctrinal teaching of the Bible. When you do that, what you have done is you have set yourself up in a position above Scripture to say, I will be the judge and the arbiter of what is true and what is not true. And I will determine what part of God's word I believe and what part of God's word I disbelieve. I will determine what is viable for me today and what is not. And you may say, well, I believe Jesus, but I reject these things. Listen, that is the picture of an unbelieving heart. You say, how can it be an unbelieving heart if you're willing to say, I believe this, even though I disbelieve this. I believe this. Isn't that a believing heart? 
No, an unbelieving heart says, I will determine what I believe. So even though you may say, I believe this over here, while I reject this, that is the essence of an unbelieving heart. It is the unbelieving heart that says, I will determine what I believe. Because at the current, I only believe this because it's comfortable to me. So all of the people who say, well, we will embrace what the Bible says about Jesus and His death and salvation in the New Testament, but we reject what God says about, and I'm just going to pick one of my favorite ones, the creation of the world in seven literal 24-hour days, only about six to 8,000 years ago. I'm going to reject that, but I'm going to embrace the part about Jesus. That is an unbelieving heart. You know why they reject the creation account? They reject that because the guys in the white coats think it's unfashionable. And they reject it, and they don't like it, and they think believing in creation is foolishness. i got news for you. They also believe that the idea that God died on a cross and rose again from the dead and became a man, they also believe that that's foolishness. And they also believe that salvation by grace through faith alone is foolishness. And they also believe that this Bible, that the, the belief that this Bible is the written word of God, they also believe that is foolishness. So where do you stop? You simply reject something because somebody says it's foolish? Or do you stand to Scripture and say, I will believe all that God has revealed about himself I will embrace all of it, and I will not say I disbelieve this, and I will, or I disbelieve this, and I will only believe this. We're going to get into some hard stuff in John chapter six, where my challenge to you is going to ask you: Do you believe this? Do you believe what Jesus says in John chapter six? Some of the hardest words you will ever read in your life about the sovereignty of God and salvation is John six. You and I are not free to say, "Well, I, I believe this part, but I'm not going to believe this." That is the heart of unbelief. This is, I will determine what I believe. You cannot accept some parts of Scripture and reject other parts of Scripture. For you have just set yourself up to reject all of Scripture when you determine that it is unfashionable to believe any other part of Scripture. J.C. Ryle says this, They cannot divide Moses and Christ. If they do not believe the one, they will find sooner or later that they do not believe the other. If they begin by casting off Moses and not believing his writings, they will find in the end that to be consistent, they must cast off Christ. And Samuel Rutherford, writing in the 1600s, says, Christ and the Scriptures have but one tongue, and they who believe not the Scriptures believe not Christ. That's the end of John chapter 5. I want you to notice a couple of things. This, In short 21 verses of John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus has expounded an incredible number of profound doctrines. John 5 contains some of the most amazing teaching on the Trinity and the relationship of the Father and the Son, and the commission of the Father and Son that you can hope to find anywhere in Scripture. And I take this from J.C. Ryle. Eleven subjects that the Lord Jesus teaches on in these 21 verses that we've just now finished going through. The intimate relation of the Father and the Son, the divine commission and dignity of the Son, the privileges of the man who believes, the quickening of the spiritual dead, the judgment, the resurrection of the body, the value of miracles, the Scriptures, the corruption of man's will, which is the secret of man's ruin, the love of man's praise, which is the cause of unbelief, and number 11, the importance of the writings of Moses. All of those subjects Jesus has covered in 21 short verses. That's amazing, isn't it? You know what's interesting to me? This is just by way of curiosity as we close. What's interesting to me is that John does not record the response to this sermon in John 5. You notice that? Chapter 6 takes us in a whole new direction, a whole new subject, a whole new encounter and episode in the life of our Lord. But John doesn't tell us what happened. These Jews, these Pharisees who were standing before him, how, how did they respond to this? The accusation, the condemnation, and the, the mention of their judgment and their, their eternal judgment, and the fact that they were dead and their sin and their need to respond to him and pressing them for belief. Did any of them believe? Is it possible that, and this is only speculation, but is it possible that 
It was this event that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea sat in on, those two distinguished, wealthy, well-respected Pharisaical Jews, that they sat in on this and they heard this and that this is where those two men believed because later on in the Gospels, they are believers. Or was there just a wholesale rejection? My, my suspicion is a wholesale rejection simply because of what we get earlier in the chapter. But may I suggest to you that John leaves us at the end of John 5 not telling us what the response is for a particular purpose. And this, I think, is the particular purpose. John leaves us with this word ringing in our ears. Believe. If you will not believe what is written, you will not believe in the Son. Period. Believe. And maybe John leaves us hanging, not so that we might wonder what their response was, but so that we might consider what our response is going to be to what we read in John chapter 5. That's the way John wants it. To leave us, believe. Believe in the Son. Friends, he has laid out for us all of the privileges that come to the one who believes. Who simply without a prideful, arrogant, self-righteous heart humbles themselves and says, I will trust my eternal destiny to the Son. I will hinge everything that I am in this life and everything that I will ever be in the life to come on his claims and his person and I will trust myself entirely to him. So now I ask you, which camp are you in? Unbelieving or believing? That was the choice that Jesus left the Pharisees in John 5 and that is the same choice that confronts every human being today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. What a marvelous discourse you have given to us through your Son. And Lord, you have given us the faith to believe. It is your gift. We thank you for it. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to behold the things that are revealed in Scripture. We thank you that you have quickened our hearts so that we might believe. We thank you that we are like Philip in recognizing that your Son, Jesus, is the one about whom Moses and the prophets spoke. We thank you, O God, that you have done that work in our hearts. And we pray for those that we know and those who may be here who do not believe, who are unbelieving, that they would entrust themselves and their destiny to the eternal Son who is able to save fully all those who come to him by faith. Thank you for such a precious Savior. Thank you for such a precious salvation. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.